The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of the Psalms. Psalm 24, beginning at verse 1, we'll be reading through verse 10 this morning, which is also the end of the chapter. The word of the Lord. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the rivers. And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, but the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Here endeth the old covenant reading. The new covenant reading is taken from the gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 7. We'll be reading through verse 12 this morning. If you were with us last week, you may recall that the first four Beatitudes are really organized around the fact that we are all dependent upon God. And what you're going to discover this morning is that the second four Beatitudes are all organized around God's transforming grace in our lives. He changes us into things that we act differently so that we're more like Jesus Christ. And then he blesses the work of his own spirit. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 7. The word of our God. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Please keep your place in Matthew, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. One Christmas, I was visiting my parents on a Christmas break from the Naval Academy. And while I was there, my mom brought out my dad's old army jacket from he, when he was 19 years old. And she had me try on the jacket. And it fit like it was tailor-made for me. Like father, like son. Right? That's the way it works. I mean, children do tend to grow up to look like their parents. So young people, you can rejoice. You have a lot of good-looking parents in this room, and that's probably what you're going to look like when you grow up. 
Now, of course, if you adopt children, uh, they don't take on your physical characteristics, but they will still pick up on all the mannerisms, um, the value system that you have, your character. Uh, they will even pick up on things that you like and dislike. That's just how it works. And that's how it works in the family of God as well. When Almighty God adopted you into his family, he set God himself, the Holy Spirit, at work in your life so that the Holy Spirit would be conforming you into the likeness of Jesus Christ, who is the very image of the living God, so that through the Holy Spirit's work, you would more and more resemble your Father and represent his character out into the world, like Father, like Son. In this morning's passage, we see that the Lord blesses the Christ-like, In particular, the Lord blesses the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemaker, and those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The promised blessings are all extraordinary, but the greatest blessing is actually what's at the root of them all. God himself is committed and actively working to conform you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. We begin with mercy. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, as I mentioned, there's a noticeable shift that takes place in the Beatitudes as we move to verse 7. The previous four Beatitudes were about being dependent upon God in a way that highlights our own inability and our own weakness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The next four Beatitudes, beginning with blessed are the merciful, highlight what the Lord is doing that we cannot do. What the Lord is doing by transforming his adopted children into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Now, we should realize that these are not hermetically sealed categories, Right? Mercy and grace are often used interchangeably in the Bible, and mercy and love always go together. So, for example, when we come to the uh, very famous parable of the Good Samaritan, which Jesus tells to show what it really looks like to love your neighbor as yourself, in the process, he gives an example of profound mercy. You know the story. The man on the side of the road, stripped beaten and left half dead by robbers, had absolutely no claim upon the Samaritan. But that Samaritan bound up his wounds, carried his burdens, and when he brought him to the inn, said, help this man, I will pay whatever it takes to do that. And as James Montgomery Boyce reminds us, isn't that precisely what Jesus has done for us? He's come to us when we were helpless, broken in ourselves, And he carries our burdens, binds up our wounds, and most significantly, he pays the price of what it takes to reconcile us to Almighty God. Here's the key thing, though. This is not an attribute that a few saints seek after. It's not as though a few super saints learn to become merciful like Jesus is. 
God is conforming all of you and all of your brothers and sisters throughout the entire earth into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the merciful who are becoming like Jesus in this way, he means all of us. This is a description of every Christian who will ever live. And therefore, on that last great day of the Lord, we will all receive mercy from God. Please keep in mind the four Beatitudes we're looking at today and the four that we looked at last week, they're not a stair climber. These are not descriptions of you pushing harder and harder, hoping that you make it, hopeful that you're merciful enough, that you're committed enough to being a peacemaker, that you are poor enough in spirit and so on, devoted enough to God, so that you'll be part of that subset of God's children who will receive all these remarkable blessings. As Jeffrey Gibbs points out, the adjective merciful describes Jesus' disciples, all of them. It bespeaks of the transforming power of discipleship and of Jesus' call to faith. Jesus himself is mercy incarnate, perfect mercy. One simply cannot become his disciple without also beginning to exhibit mercy in a new way. Now, should you energetically apply yourself to pursuing becoming more merciful and all the other character traits that are to mark us out as disciples? Of course you should. Right? The Bible routinely puts in the fact that we're supposed to be involved in this. It talks about the Christian life as a race that we train for like a great athlete or, or, or a fight that we put all our energy into winning for the glory of God. Of course you should be involved, but you should be involved with great confidence. For God himself has predestined you to this very thing. See, when God predestined you, he did not predestine you to the beginning of your salvation, but to the end, that you would be conformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And even now, God the Holy Spirit is at work in you, both to will and to do. Please notice there's also a logic to how we as Christ's disciples move from being selfish people who demand revenge and the full payment of what is owed to us to becoming merciful people who forgive what other people owe to us. There's the power of the Holy Spirit, but there's also a natural logic to this. In Christ, your Father in heaven has forgiven you an unimaginable debt. And so you then in turn look at other people and say, what they owe me is almost nothing. God has forgiven you an almost unimaginable debt in Jesus Christ, and therefore you will be transformed by that to being gracious and kind to other people who have slighted you in small ways, or people who are simply in need that have no claim on you, you will say, I had no claim on God, and he sent his son for me. I can stop by the side of the road and help somebody who is in need. To be an unmerciful child of God is quite frankly a contradiction in terms. It means you're not becoming like Jesus. Beloved, you are forgiven for Christ's sake, Let that truth transform the way you treat everyone who is around you. Um, I should say something about the promised blessing here, actually, because I've discovered uh, that even some fine pastors and commentators seem to get this wrong. The blessing is future. I pointed this out last week. The two blessings that are present are the kingdom of heaven is yours. 
The other six blessings are future. Now, by God's grace, we begin to partake of them, right? But, but they're primarily future-oriented. This is Jesus saying, on that day of judgment in the future, you will receive mercy. And it's also specifically mercy from God. Jesus is not giving just a kind of a way things work in life is karma. You know, if you're kind to other people, they'll be kind to you. If you're merciful to people, they'll be merciful to you. Now, that may happen sometimes. But just think about Jesus. The person who was mercy incarnate was crucified on a cross. Now, Jesus, of course, didn't need mercy in return. He has an absolute claim on everybody, and he never offended anybody at all in terms of righteousness. But when Jesus displayed his mercy to the world, to human beings, human beings put him to death. You ought not to imagine that if you are merciful, that everyone else will be merciful to you. Jesus, after all, is going to go on to talk about being persecuted for righteousness' sake. But what you can be confident of is that God is transforming you into the likeness of his Son. You have received mercy from God, and on the great day of judgment, you will receive complete mercy from the judge of all the earth. It is not surprising that the Lord who promises us that he is conforming us into the likeness of his son, is also promising that in this world you will face persecution and injustice. Beloved, those things go together. God is calling us, like Jesus, to bless those who persecute us. Yes, bless and do not curse. For blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Um, Soren Kierkegaard is right about this. You want to know what it means to be pure in heart? To be pure in heart is to desire one thing. I think that's easy for us to get wrong in our culture. It'd be easy for us to imagine that to be pure in heart is simply to walk around always thinking good thoughts. But that's not what Jesus primarily has in view. Uh, Jesus is not giving us an abstract, platonic set of virtues that we can meditate on and kind of help ourselves become like that. He is calling us to follow him as his disciples. To be pure in heart means to be devoted to God, single-mindedly. Not torn between God and, for example, money, or God and career success and so on, but God first and foremost, and ultimately God alone. Purity of heart has to do with undivided loyalty to God. It is, in fact, what we're called to do in the first and the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That word all is important. Right? It's not, uh, God isn't calling us to kind of nod in his direction a bit. You know, when the people worshipped uh, the pagan gods, like in the Greek and Roman pantheons, it was expected that you would worship multiple gods. Right? And in our case, you're not going to actually go to another worship service, like on Wednesday, to worship another god. But the temptation is to put your hope, your trust, your confidence, your security in God and in my 401k. In God and how liked I am by my group, right? In God, in fame, in God, in success, whatever it happens to be, 
to be torn between these two things. And Jesus tells us, you know, you can't worship both God and money. You've got to be committed to one entirely, and that is to the Lord. Think about Elijah on Mount Carmel. I mean, it's the very opposite. When Elijah goes up on Mount Carmel and the people have been worshiping the Baals and the Ashtoreth, he says, stop limping between two opinions. If the Lord is God, worship him. If Baal is God, worship him. You can't do both. And that's true with whatever else is attracting you in this life. God is calling us to love him alone. We actually see this in Psalm 24, our Old Covenant reading this morning. The psalmist asks, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? The answer is, He who has clean hands and a pure heart. I mean, most scholars think that's the background for this. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. The very things the psalmist goes on to say, the Lord will bless. But then the psalmist goes on to make clear what it means to have a pure heart. He does not lift up his soul to what is false, and he does not swear deceitfully. Now, to lift up your soul, we don't don't use that expression in English. To lift up your soul in the Old Testament has this idea of longing for something. Or in this context, to entrusting yourself to something. That thing is going to make my life meaningful, happy. It's going to satisfy me. It's actually an act of worship. Correspondingly, to swear deceitfully is to misuse the Lord's name to gain something that we value more than what we pray for in the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. We're misusing the Lord's name because we want this more than God's name to be hallowed, even on our own lips. Well, those things are in conflict with loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They are the opposite of being pure in heart. To do either or both of these things is to have a divided heart. Living like this declares that I can only be satisfied by God and money. Christ and getting into a great school. Christ and this job that I want. Or Christ and anything else rather than by Christ and Christ alone. Jesus will later say, no man can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. To be pure in heart is to be devoted to the Lord alone. I think it's important for us to add that Loving the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength does not mean you can't love anyone else. In fact, it requires you to love other people. Right? God, who says, I demand your complete loyalty, also commands that you love your neighbor as yourself. The issue is those things can't be in conflict with each other. Right? If one of them is pulling you away from God, that's to have a divided heart. And Jesus is saying God is going to bless those who are single-minded in their devotion to his father. Okay, we have a problem. We're not there yet. Right. Would any of you raise your hand and go, that's me? I have a completely undivided heart. I am single-mindedly devoted to God. So the question is, how can we press on toward the high calling that is ours in Jesus Christ? 
that we would become more and more like Jesus who said to do the will of my Father is my very food. Let me suggest that we don't do this primarily by trying to get rid of the other things in our lives. One of the reasons for that is many of the things that compete for our loyalty are actually good in themselves. Right? If you have things that are intrinsically sinful, by all means, work at getting them out of your life. But most of the things that compete for your affections with God are not bad things. They are things that are good in themselves, but you have in the wrong place. Right? You haven't put them in subordination to God and willing to let them go. Right? They are things that are intended to be God's blessings to you in your relationship with him. They are things that are intended for you to enjoy, yes, out of gratitude to your Father. But they are not intended to be in God's place. The key, therefore, is simply to focus on the Lord himself. That that sounds so simple, you're going to miss it. So I I want to say this again. The key here is to focus on the Lord himself. That is, as God becomes bigger in your eyes, as you become more and more enraptured with the wonder of who he is and what he is like, and what he has done in Jesus Christ, that will reorder the other things so that they are put in their proper place. As we treasure Jesus Christ more and more in our thinking and in our lives, the Lord will graciously make us more like him. And then he will bless us for what his own transforming grace is doing. Isn't that amazing? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now this might seem like the easiest of all the character traits to acquire. Peacemakers. I mean, doesn't everybody love peace? In fact, we admire peacemakers in this world, right? So if there's ever a place where Seeking the praise of God and seeking the praise of men actually run in the same direction should be us being peacemakers. I mean, think about Martin Luther King Jr. We have a national holiday named after him. There are schools named after him, scholarships named after him because he sought racial reconciliation in an appropriate way. He dreamed and worked for the day when the sons of slave owners and the sons of slaves would sit down at the table of brotherhood together where men and women would be judged by the content of their character rather than by the color of their skin. And so we celebrate them. I mean, isn't this the type of thing that you could easily aspire to? Who's against peace? Then we remember that on April 4th, 1968, Dr. King was shot and killed by James Earl Ray. He was only 39 years old. See, it turns out that peacemakers like prophets are admired much more after they're dead than while they're still alive causing trouble and telling us that we need to change. One of the reasons we can imagine that peacemaking is easy is that American culture has taken this really strange turn where we confuse being in favor of something with actually doing something. Um, You have two more weeks or so, I don't know how many, I'm not counting, to the election. You'll know that the politicians do this all the time. You know, I favor peace, I favor taking care of the poor, whatever happens to be, I favor cutting your taxes. And the fact that my policies I'm proposing are going to cause all kinds of problems, that's not what I meant. You ought to give me credit for my good intentions. And it's not just the politicians who do that. 
And so we imagine that because we all value peace, but that actually is a virtue for us. But see, there's a world of difference between loving peace and making peace. Admiring peace is easy. Making peace is costly. Jesus does not bless those who merely admire peace. Jesus pronounces God's blessing on those who work to make peace. Furthermore, while Jesus is concerned about the establishment of a righteous peace between neighbors, this beatitude is focused upon making peace between human beings and God. So you ask yourself, how costly was it for God to make peace between rebellious human beings and himself? And then you remember it cost him the life of his son. He sent his son into this world and had him crucified on the cross. He poured out his own holy wrath against your guilt and mine on Jesus Christ so that now, through the blood of Jesus, there's peace between you and Almighty God. Now, through Christ's death, we have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, naturally enough, we do not imitate Jesus in this way. Um, God has a strict limit of one Savior per universe, and you are not him. You will not die for anybody's sins, right? Uh, Neither will I. That is not how he does it. So how do we make peace and serve as peacemakers in the way that Jesus is saying? Well, we do it by entering into God's own mission to reconcile the world to himself by spreading the good news of the victory of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. And I remind you, this is not simply something for missionaries and evangelists, and pastors, right? The whole church has been given the Great Commission, not not just a few individuals. And the whole church is involved, we're just involved in different ways, right? Some of us are sent, some of us send. You pray for people, that's being involved in the Great Commission, right? We are all together corporately involved in this great work, and therefore we are all in the fishing business when it comes to fishing for men. Today is a good day to reconsider the part you are taking in this great work. Today is a good day to ponder whether we should be doing something with greater effort and zeal or whether we should be engaged in this work in a different way. Uh, Maybe because we recognize we have different gifts or maybe because it's simply a different season in our life But all of us are being called to imitate Jesus in this way, to be conformed to his character, to care that the lost would be reconciled to their God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I emphasize that word you because you notice that Jesus makes a change here. He's been giving all these beatitudes and now he's saying, but this applies to you. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. And the key is to ask, what does that mean? 
What does it mean to be persecuted for righteousness' sake? Well, it does mean, of course, that you're not doing something bad, right? Um, being ridiculed for being a jerk is not being persecuted for righteousness' sake. That, that's certainly true. But Jesus has something narrower in mind than this. What exactly does Jesus have in mind? Well, righteousness could refer to the righteous behavior of those who are seeking to follow Jesus. But I don't think that's the primary point. Look at the parallelism between verses 10 and 11 with me. This is a useful thing as you're studying the Bible to recognize it often carries over, even in the New Testament, this Old Testament pattern of using parallelism, and in this case, synonymous parallelism, where phrases or words in two clauses coming right after each other essentially mean the same thing. In verse 10, Jesus says, for righteousness' sake, while in verse 11 he says, on my account. This construction suggests that for righteousness' sake and on my account mean essentially the same thing. Jesus is not talking about upright behavior in the abstract. He is either talking about being persecuted because we are following Jesus, or even more likely, being persecuted because we are announcing God's saving righteousness, which is found in Christ and in Christ alone. And all i got to do to see how this works out is consider the Apostle Paul. I mean, humanly speaking, one of the most remarkable peacemakers in all of history. He went around telling people how they could be forgiven. He went around telling people that Jesus the Lord had put away the guilt for all his people. And they did not build statues to him. You know, there are now churches called St. Paul's after he's dead. But in his own life, he was beaten, flogged, imprisoned, ridiculed, and mocked because he was a peacemaker. And he was persecuted in that sense for righteousness, announcing the saving righteousness that comes to us in Jesus Christ. In either case, whether it's for following Jesus as his disciples, or following specifically in this way, announcing the good news, in either case, the Lord's blessings fall upon those who are engaging the world rather than those who are set upon escaping it. Now, a weird quirk throughout church history is that it has been commonly thought that to pursue holiness, what you need to do is escape the world. Uh, this is actually true in America, where in the 19th century in particular, but it's still with us to some degree today, if you really want to get close to God, you've got to leave the local church and go out into the wilderness to a camp meeting. You've got to get away from all those distractions. In the Middle Ages and earlier, it was go off and become a monk, right? Get away from the contamination of the world. And that's not what Jesus is blessing here. Jesus is blessing those who are engaging the world. Now, I do want to say, I, I stand against, so you should know I'm in the minority, I do stand against the majority of Reformed theologians in our own day who, who tend to want to press everybody into doing sort of the same thing. I do think there is room for people to pursue a more contemplative life who are not engaged in going out and doing so much, but they're engaged in things like going off and quiet and praying and writing for the church, right? They're, they're, they're devoted to the church in that way. They're devoted to the world through their prayers. I think there is room for that. 
But what there is not room for in Jesus' plan for his kingdom is for people to go off by themselves to focus on themselves. Jesus is calling us to engage the world, all of us, in various ways in our vocations, together as the church in the Great Commission, and that is whom Jesus is pronouncing God's blessing upon. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. We've been called to follow Jesus, and God is at work conforming us to his image. If you look at Jesus' life, there were times where he separated for prayer and refreshment and renewal, or at least he tried to. The crowds usually followed him and made that difficult. But he was so engaged with the world that he was mocked and ridiculed for eating with sinners and tax collectors. He was engaged with sinners in order to bring them the good news. Why should we rejoice whenever we are persecuted for living like Christ or for declaring the good news about Jesus Christ? Let me suggest three reasons why we ought to cheer up and count it all joy. Because you don't naturally think of persecution as joy. If you do, that's a problem. But we ought to when we're persecuted for Christ's sake. First, persecution, like any hardship that we face, provides us with a special opportunity to make clear that Jesus is worth more than anything the world can promise or anything the world can take away. Now, if you display joy while you're enjoying wonderful circumstances in your life, and there's nothing wrong with wonderful circumstances, rejoice, give thanks to God, and so on. But if you're experiencing and displaying joy to the world while you got a promotion, you got engaged to a wonderful person, uh, you got a new house, whatever that happens to be, Nobody can see that your joy comes from God. They're going to think your joy comes from those circumstances, and they're going to say, you know, if I got that promotion, I'd be happy too. Right? If you display joy while everything is coming up roses, nobody will know that your joy comes from anything other than your circumstances. James Montgomery Boyce puts it like this. If you are able to rejoice when things are not favorable then Jesus Christ may be clearly seen in you, and the supernatural power of the Christian faith is made manifest. Persecution in the dark background, I'm sorry, persecution is the dark background for the supernatural radiance of this new life. Let me say that again. Persecution is the dark background for the supernatural radiance of this new life. Therefore, instead of fearing persecution, We ought to see it as a special opportunity to glorify our Father who is in heaven. Second, as Christians we can rejoice in the knowledge that Jesus Christ is especially close to those who are being persecuted for his namesake. I'm sure you all remember the story of Daniel's friends getting thrown into the fiery furnace. Um, Their Hebrew names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, uh, but King Nebuchadnezzar gave them new names. But they didn't lose their identity with God. Then when King Nebuchadnezzar saw them thrown into the fiery furnace, he was astonished, and he rose in haste, and he spoke, saying to the counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, 
walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. As Dr. Boyce points out, in the same way Jesus Christ is particularly near to those who are persecuted for his sake, and they could have great joy in this knowledge. Third, Jesus promises here in this text great reward when we joyfully and faithfully suffer persecution. By the way, isn't that the promise that Peter was clinging to and the other apostles when they were persecuted by the Sanhedrin? Remember, in the early church, when the apostles are preaching God's word, the Jewish leaders, they, they, they arrested them, they brought them to prison, and they demanded that they stop preaching in God's name. And they said, well, you know, whether we are to obey man or God, you can decide for yourself, but as for us, we must obey God. And they couldn't figure out what to do with them. So they beat them. They didn't just let them go. They beat the apostles, and then they let them go. As the apostles left the presence of the council, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. See, Jesus did not come proclaiming the good news that we will have nothing but endless comfort in this life. Jesus came proclaiming the good news that God's sovereign reign was crashing into this world in his own person, that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Jesus came proclaiming that in him we are reconciled to God and brought into God's family as children, that is, as his very own sons and daughters. And Jesus calls us to follow him. Not that this would give us life, He gives you life and calls you to follow him. Jesus calls us to follow him, not that this would give us a life of ease or give us life with God, but that in following him, we would have lives that matter forever. And Jesus came proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor and extraordinary blessings upon those whom the Holy Spirit is conforming into his own likeness. For they shall receive mercy, for they shall see God, for they shall be called sons of God, and for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And all of this is by God's grace and for his glory. So by all means, let us press on to pursue the high calling that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yet, beloved, let us do this with confidence, For the Lord has predestined us, not to the beginning of the journey, but to the end. And let us press on, because God the Holy Spirit is at work in you, both to will and to do. Amen.